All right, Andrew's getting coffee. This is a good time. Don't forget about some of our in-person events, especially the Kansas City Calm Before Winter Storm. There's maybe a few spots left if you haven't signed up yet, but it is getting pretty close to full. So if there's any hesitation on your part, make sure to get that going. And reach out to us if you have any questions about it, but we'd love to have you over for the Calm Before the Winter Storm. We're really looking forward to yeah, that's a good point. Brief announcement about that. I think we already have eight official signups with two in process. So spots are filling up fast and I haven't released it to the main population yet. So get that sign up in. It could be gone pretty quick. I don't know exactly when I'm going to send the email out to everybody, but I don't know. At some point, I'm just going to do it. And then it would be a shame if you procrastinated. There's really cool payment plans, by the way. If you'd like to go, if you do have cash flow concerns, and that's the reason you haven't bid on it yet. The Edinburgh School, by the way, here's something cool from my trip. The Edinburgh School, I got a chance to tour all the venues for it. And oh my God, it's going to be so amazing. But we're having some visa issues. So we're unable to officially press play on this yet. Like there's a little bit of confusion. First, the lawyers yeah. told us, First, the lawyers told us, oh, no problem. This is how we're going to do it. No big deal. And then the next lawyer came back and said, what the hell was that first lawyer talking about? Uh, and now we're halfway in between in that maybe. Yeah. Okay. I need a little bit better than yeah. maybe. So we're still working those things out. But uh, it's going to be cool. Ken says, can you elaborate on what will be covered at Calm Before the Winter Storm? No, because we haven't really decided. Right now, the working model will be that it would be it would be a close relative of stuff that we've done at the tuning clinic over the years, but not exactly the same and possibly more expansive. And then also, at least for people who are interested, there would be like a performance preparation element because we're thinking some people would want to go to calm before winter storm and then compete in the contests on the Thursday and Friday. So right now, all of those are swirling together. And the exact answer at this exact moment in time is we don't know exactly what we want to cover. Ken, what do you want to cover? I wouldn't put it past us to, once the registrants are all locked up, sending out a little survey saying, hey, what's the one thing that you struggle with most or want to improve on? You know, we've been known to do stuff like that before, so it could be a very nice tailored. We should be able to do that. So it's going to be, it's going to be me and Carl. And there's going to be a 20 person maximum and we're going to have three entire days to do stuff. So yeah, it could be quite bespoke by the end of it. And yeah. honestly, we don't have an exact plan yet because we just want to, we want to get the word out and go to get all that stuff done. So that would be why. So terrible answer there, Ken. That's what's happening. Do we have a, any other announcements? Those oh, are the big ones. No, I got another big one. All right. Cruise Journey North is officially happening. Just so you know. May 4th, 2024. It is officially happening. Information forthcoming. Excellent. And that's with, with Jack Lee. Yeah. So it'll be Jack Lee, Rab Matheson, myself. And then at the moment, the plan is for Reed Maxwell to come and do some stuff with a couple of drummers. I don't know if you've got any drummers that you want to bring along with you on a cruise, but 
you could do it. Is there any sort of limit on how many people can go to that? There is no limit. We're shooting for 40 people. Excellent. But I don't think there's a limit. All right. So announcements are over. Do we have a, what are we doing today? Do you, are we going to do a quick commandment of the week? We can. Last or, week, I think was immersion. So today's unofficial, not published really anywhere. Commandment of the week is to think about daily action and not doing massive amounts of practice like once a week. That yeah. sounds silly to most of us now that we've been taught otherwise, but think of the former you. Or maybe one of those friends that's not doing so well in the pipes. They get the pipes out once a week and they play for three hours and then they don't touch them at all the rest of the week, except maybe at band practice, which is another three hours. And so then you're really sure that they're not going to get their pipes out any other day of the week. And we uh, talk about, can we talk about memorization under the umbrella of this commandment? Sure. Why not? On a regular basis, you hear all sorts of stuff like, only get in you. I can't memorize. That's how it sounds to me. And it especially sounds that way to me when I know that what this person is currently trying to do is get everything memorized in time for their big band practice coming up in three days. Mm -hmm. Right? Suddenly, you haven't memorized it. Suddenly, it's time to get it memorized. And what do you know? Three days out. Your voice sounds like this, Andrew, I don't know. I can't get my tune memorized. That's, I, that's just how it comes out. Daily action versus massive action. What if you just play the tunes that you're going to have to know a little bit every day for quite a while? Craziness. Do you, do you think memorization is going to be like a huge problem? And what if you like threw a recording of those tunes on? A couple of times a day. Oh, love it. In addition to playing through it once or twice. It's funny you should mention that. So I have recent anecdotal evidence for this, which is last year, not this year. Last year, I had two hours of concert material to learn for the big Inverary concert. And it became, it's not rocket science to figure out like, oh, that's going to be a lot to get memorized. So what's the best game plan? And the best game plan is to just start playing the tunes as many as reasonably possible, a little bit every day. And it's funny, Carl should mention the recordings because of course, that's exactly what I did as well. When the band would rehearse the things and record them, they would end up on my playlist. And then I would basically just kind of listen through things as often as I could or could tolerate. And very gradually, you start to get familiar with the tunes. And then when it comes to memorization, it's really not a big deal. If I asked you right now, if you could perform your national anthem from memory, what would you say? Most of us, I think we got it. Most likely, I think the vast majority of us would not be a big problem. You might have some performance nerves because you've never been asked to perform that sort of like solo in front of a large group. Janet, you want to give a go at it? No, just kidding. But you might have some performance nerves or whatever, but I don't think memorization is going to be the big issue there. And that's just chipping away at that melody many times over a very long period of time. And then memorization isn't going to be a big deal. Memorization, that's how you do it, right? The reason memorization is so hard, I bet you has a lot to do with not embracing daily action and instead having to resort to massive action. By the way, how about retention? How long are you going to be able to keep that tune in your memory? If you had, yeah. to, do, if you had to do massive action to memorize it, 
how long is it going to stick in your brain when you don't need it anymore? It would be nice to have it there though, wouldn't it? But then meanwhile, if you did daily action and you played that tune a little bit every day, you're never going to forget it. I've got so many tunes like that, like pipe major, Tom McAllister, eight parted two, four March. I could play that without even thinking about it because Warren Moore played it for years and years and years. And we played it a little bit every day. Never had to worry about memorizing because you're always just chipping away at it. So there you go. Informal commandment of the week. Carl, where can you get a list of commandments of the week? In the can, 11 you, commandments. Yeah. Of you also, there is no list. There is no list. These are informal. These are informal. Someday we're going to switch up the order too. Just keep people on their toes. The order of the 11 commandments, does the order of the commandments matter? Their commandments. Their commandments. The order doesn't matter. However, the order was carefully thought through like the order in which they're presented, but it doesn't actually matter. They're all relevant. And when you have your 11 commandments, when you're struggling with the bagpipes, here's something, here's a tip. When you're struggling, when you're in a rut, when things aren't going the way that you want them to go, take the 11 commandments, give yourself a score out of 10 for all those commandments. What you will find is one or more commandments has a bad score. Okay. Whatever the thing that you get your bad score in is, Work on that thing and you'll start to pull yourself out of the rut. It's an amazing tool. For example, how many times have you recorded yourself in the last month? Oh, see, Reg is laughing, right? Reg is laughing. That's how poorly he's done recording himself, right? But that's a commandment. We need to at least occasionally record ourselves, right? So that we can have like a representation of what we are doing and we can analyze that thing. That's, that's a commandment. Anyone who, anyone in any craft, not just bagpiping, who's serious about mastery will utilize recording on a somewhat regular basis so that they can analyze and view their progress and ask for outside opinion and so on and so forth. If you've ever heard the phrase, this call will be recorded for quality assurance purposes, <laughs> right? It's exactly the same umbrella, people. Okay. By the way, had lunch with MQM, and I was a very poor lunch partner yesterday. And Why you didn't show up? <laughs> no, it just my mind was in a million places. And uh, failure to avoid multitasking, I think, we think was the main cause. So there you go. Just, mm -hmm. an, just I understand people assume that I'm perfect with all 11 commandments, but I'm not. But, but meanwhile... I went home that afternoon and I just got organized, got all my stuff organized. And then I immediately felt better. Amazing how it does that, right? Get organized. Oh, this is actually, I can do this. Yeah. You just take your Same lowest hanging piping. fruit. Yeah. yeah. You take your lowest hanging fruit and you can address it. And it doesn't take rocket science and it doesn't take a, and it doesn't take a two hour, hundred dollar bagpipe lesson to sort most of our issues out. It just doesn't. Yeah, you did talk me into putting some Cheetos on my poke bowl. That sounds which like I, very... which was, It was really good. It's like nice and salty and savory. Do you go to Hades if you don't follow the commandments? Yes, you go to bagpipe Hades. We have yet to have that illustrated, but maybe we can have a master AI illustrator. Yeah, that would do be that someday. Yeah. Marina says, I need to do multitasking all the time. Wrong. No, you don't. And it doesn't feel efficient. I would check the assumption that you need to do multitasking. I would, tra I would translate that into 
I refuse to ever multitask. Great things will happen. I understand where you're getting with that. Marina's like a mom with kids and it's wild and crazy. Totally get it. But, But you can still find brief moments where you can focus. I believe in you. I know you can do it. So maybe an hour of pure focus isn't going to happen. Totally got it. No problem. But you can carve 10 minutes out. I know you can. And you'll be amazed what you can achieve with 10 minutes of actual pure focus. Yeah. I didn't, I, I got the gist she wasn't talking about her piping multitasking. I don't think yeah. Andrew really is making any difference there. No difference. Whatever you're trying to achieve, a small amount of pure focus, that's like the secret elixir of achievement, I think. I think. It's hard, though. I'm just a dad, not a mom, but we have small kids. And even for me, it's like super hard to carve out that, those little focus moments. But also, I amaze myself what I can achieve and just if I can just get like 11 minutes. I can just get organized, get my stuff going pay my taxes. I had to pay my taxes last night. That was one of the things I had to do. Paying them is better than not paying them though. In the long run. Okay. Well, so we get to a couple of preloaded questions. Let's throw this out there again, folks. If you guys have burning questions, your questions will take precedence. So pop them down there in the chat box. I don't think we've missed any so far, but if so, let us know. What are you wondering Someone's about? Someone's challenging me. Pike world. My wife is not just a wife and a mom. My, my wife is a wife and a mom, and she works like 60 hours a week at her job. It's wild and crazy. Whoever just, I who you are, just challenge me in the private message. But we digress. What were we even talking about? Okay, yeah, questions in the chat. Just a wife and a mom. What's that all? What's a good age to start your kids in piping? That's a good question. As soon as they're able to concentrate for a few minutes and hold a practice channel. I think the right time to start piping for anybody is like whenever they express an interest. That's my game plan. So far, my kids have not expressed like any super big interest in actually sitting down and learning. Hannah and I have dabbled a little bit, but it's... It would be forcing it if we tried to go much beyond Mary had a little lamb on the left hand. So I think the right age is whenever they express an interest. And I'm of the belief that if they don't express an interest, I'm not going to try and teach them how to play the pipes. People should do what they're interested in. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Granted, eventually they'll start to get dragged around to piping stuff. And so maybe they'll come to the conclusion that they're interested in it. Maybe they'll find here is their own age that yeah. would help. With that said, maybe I started when I was eight. And I was almost eight when I started. Yeah. Very similar age. Yeah. And a lot of good pipers I know started like in their early teens and stuff. I would say, I would say to be a great piper, to be one of the top one or two percent, It seems to be that you want to start between the ages of eight and 13. That's, that seems to be where the probability is strong that you could actually become like one of those outlier ones. It reminds me of pretty much everything else. If you're going to be great at chess, you're probably going to want to start before you're a teenager. 
if you want to be a great baseball player, probably going to want to start young. Hockey players start at like age three learning how to skate, I think. And Just stuff. Roll it right in there with the walking. Same skill. <laughs> yep. Same basic idea, right? So yeah, younger the better, but also there's probably, but probably only if they show a, an interest in it. The cool thing about baseball and hockey and stuff is that it's really common for young kids to take an interest in it. Bagpiping is a little bit different. Certainly, certainly if you're not from like a bagpiping family. Writing is one of the few things that might buck this trend. However, if you didn't start learning to speak and write your language until you were 14, that would probably be problematic. I'm thinking. So I think to become a great published author of some kind, that process of becoming a great author might start later, but the mechanics of writing would probably start later, right? And probably a deep interest in reading first Uh, as well to become like a good writer. Yeah. You didn't start being interested in reading when you were 20s, did you, MQM? No, you were reading early. Yeah. Brett, every time you bring up the Bruce Douglas interview, I'm adding a dollar to your monthly membership starting now, <laughs> starting now. Carol, Carol yeah. Said. yeah. And the practice of writing and reading and just, yeah. And immersing yourself in literature of a variety of sorts is probably a big part of it too. All right. What else we got? We got a couple of preloaded questions. If you want to. Yeah. Are you not going to spring anything controversial on me? Are you? No, you responded to, to at least one of these already. We've got the chanter pitch being at, 494 and then tapping our foot as two sort of topics we can riff on. Okay. Both rather interesting. Yeah. So if I'm recalling, I don't have my thing open, but if I'm recalling correctly, there was a person who said, do we remember his name? Yeah. His name was Steve. His name was not Steve. His name was David or something. I don't know. It was in the discord. Carl made the rookie mistake of not putting the name. Brian, that's what it was. When you do it, when you put the thing in the task list, you got to remember to put the name in too. That's one of my secrets. Sometimes I leave it out. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my secrets. Okay, so it was Brian. He was asking like, okay, I've got the solo chanter, but in order to get it to tune at 482, or in order for the hi-A to tune to 482, and I know that seems like a weird thing, but I know what he's getting at. In order to get the hi-A at 482, I have to tape the low-A significantly. So he's talking a little bit about the graduated tuning effect which where the high hand and the low hand, basically when you raise or sink a reed, it affects the high hand a lot more. So he would have raised the reed all the way up to the point where you can get the high A to around 482. But in order to do that, the low A would be significantly sharper than that. Okay. And so he was having to use a lot of tape on the bottom hand. So that kind of makes sense to me. And my question is, why do you want to play at 482? Was one of my questions. And... I don't know if he ever came up with a great answer, but you don't have to be at 482 if you're playing solo, right? You could play at any pitch you want if you're, as long as you don't have to tune up to other people in your band or to like a piano or a guitarist or something. You can pick any solo pitch you want. However, so maybe all he would have to do is sync the reed a little bit and the reed would balance nicely at something along the lines of 485 mm-hmm. or something like that. And then as the discussion progressed, we were just talking about how in a 70 degree room, which he was in, 485 would be extremely high pitch, I'm thinking. And 
anything beyond that and your bagpipe is going to start to sound like really out of place what you mean for 95 that's where his pitches was settled oh no he was saying 482 is what he was shooting for and then we were talking about 485 486 487 something like that and that's in the 70 degree room if it ever gets any hotter than that the pitch is going to keep going and you're going to be up in the mid 90s in the heat Mm -hmm. or something like that and any bagpipe in the mid 90s is going to sound like pretty brutal super sharp and thin and nasally and not quite what you want. So there is like a culturally, there's like a cultural limit to how high you would ever want your chanter to go. And by the way, the same thing is true when it comes to flatness. So it's like when you play a solo competition, it doesn't really matter what pitch you're playing, but if you're down at 476, you're going to stand out as being like in this sort of whacked out area that doesn't really like jive with what you would expect culturally for solo playing. So there is a range and your solo chanter could be a little lower. It could even be ever so slightly higher than what would be like totally normal, but you just don't want to go too extreme with it. So we were talking with Brian about different chanter and read combinations and different things that he can try. Basically, you you never want to force a read to a specific pitch unless you have to do band work. And then unless you're super experienced that you can leave to pipe major, but I agree. Short of that for solo performances, just don't force the pitch. Go wherever it's natural. Meanwhile, if it is tuning at 495, that sounds like something you would want to avoid and avoid by just changing the read. And that's what we got to the bottom of was if he took his band read, which was at a normal pitch and put it in the solo channer, it was at a normal pitch. Yeah, It's not a channer issue. And it rarely is. It's almost always just that read. It just happens to balance at a very high pitch Maybe it's on its way out. Maybe it's just that way from the beginning. And by, but, the, way, uh, by the way, he was playing an Adrian Melvin read with the, yeah. with the blue wrapping. And yeah. it could just be that read was made for a chanter that was flatter than the infinity chanter. Right. Because I know when I email Adrian for reads, which I occasionally do, he's, hey, what chanter are you playing? I think that right. he, I think he has in his mind, he's got the different chanters and how they're pitched. And so he can create a read that's going to balance really nicely in a specific chanter. I'm sure he's not the only read maker that can do that, but it might just be that read was maybe made for a flatter model. And then he tried it in this one. It was just really sharp because I think the infinity chanter is a nice, aggressive, sharply pitched chanter, which by the way, probably in Scotland in a wetter climate might be just right on the nose of what you would want. But anyway, you could email Adrian and say, Hey, I need like an easy medium read for this infinity chanter, which tends to be quite sharp. So I don't know if you can send me some good options. He probably has an infinity channer there. He could test a couple of reads in before he sends them out to you. And he wouldn't be the only read maker that might be able to help you out there. There's probably other ones like Greg Cannon comes to mind. He's making some really good reads now. Where I'm going with that is, yeah, chanter read combos, just kind of like doing your best. And to Carl's point, never, never forcing a chanter to play at a pitch it doesn't want to play at. We really want to avoid that if we can. Because it just makes our lives easier. I makes mean, everything's easier. more stable. You don't have tuning issues. Just yeah, life is better. Sounds better. Yeah. Now we always want like, so I always want a little bit of tape on every note. Fun fact, right? Because if I have just a little tiny bit of tape on each note, that gives me a little bit of room to fine tune notes in either direction if I need to. But a chanter that's covered with a whole bunch of tape 
just because I'm trying to force that channel to do something it's not naturally trying to do. Well, you can, common sense will point you in the direction that the channel is not going to sound its best when two thirds of the holes are two thirds covered in tape. Yeah. Food for thought. So a natural pitch for the solo channel is where the low A and high A balance out on a given day. Yeah. Where you're not trying to force a particular pitch. Basically, if you just threw your tuner in a fishbowl and you never looked at whatever this reference pitch we've been talking about, if you just never looked, yeah. you're probably going to be just fine. Yeah. And, and if it sounds fact, super sharp look. to you, yeah. throw it out. If it sounds super weird and flat, throw it out. And if it sounds good, you're good to go. Another thing that could be worth asking for somebody like Brian, his name was Brian. I got that right. But another thing worth asking is like, how soon in the process were you checking against the tuner? Right. So I, that would be one of the acceptable uses of a tuner is to just get a reference number where your band tunes up at 482. And so therefore, when you're practicing, you want to end up at 482. But I would only check that once I've been playing my pipes for 10, 20, 30 minutes and things are cooking and I've got things tuned the way I like it and things are balanced nicely. Then I would go over and just check the channel. Right. And I wonder if after some nice acclimatization and moisture, if the pitch would come down a little bit anyway, that would be something worth thinking about. But even if you looked over and it was like, oh crap, that's 485, that's going to be too sharp in pitch. Then you just have that information. And then yeah. you're not going to do any major surgery immediately as a, as a result. You, you might, because the pipes are sounding great. They're just a little bit too sharp. Over time, you could employ a couple of strategies to get yourself back down to the pitch. But we never want to let that digital tuner infiltrate our otherwise solid thinking about bagpipe tuning and stuff. Yeah. Okay. It's so easy to be misled down wrong. For sure. Ways of thinking with the tuner. Amen. So true. Nolan had his question of the week. You want to go back to that? Sure. What's it here? Somewhat speaking of multitasking, how would you advise structuring a group practice where you have to cover learning multiple new tunes while maintaining a fair amount of band standards for concerts and parades? Do you focus on certain elements and look at how they apply across tunes? Is it better a better strategy to avoid multitasking? Do you just accept it's going to be like this? How do we structure a band practice where we've got those multiple goals? Oh my God, that's such a great question. And I'm, I'm very like, few bands have successfully answered this, I would say. <laughs> and it's like so triggering. I feel like that adrenaline just gets the, the or that just gets the adrenaline going that question. Okay. How would you advise structuring a group practice where you have to cover learning multiple tunes, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Here's the bottom line with everything pertaining to groups like bands. Okay. When the band gets together, you should be working only on things pertaining to playing as a band. Okay. For example, who needs to learn the tune, the band or the individuals in the band? Let's start with Just that one. Band. <laughs> so let's say we've got a bunch of tunes to learn. Who needs to learn the tunes, the band or the individuals in the band? And the answer is the individuals in the band need to learn the tune. So how would I structure learning multiple tunes in the band, in the group setting? I wouldn't. People got to show up with the tunes learned. It's that simple. You should never be learning tunes in a band. We should be learning the tunes out of band. And then 
when we get together as a group, everyone's got the tunes learned. And by the way, everyone's got a great sounding bagpipe that's well prepared and well practiced, right? Everybody's been immersing themselves in bagpipe music and culture probably for many years leading up to the moment of band practice, right? So everybody comes to band with all their great skills. And then what we do as a band is we work on band things. Like, hey, we all know these tunes, but there's slight discrepancies in how Ephraim's playing it versus how I am playing it versus how Ken is playing, right? There's slight discrepancies. So let's work on ironing out those discrepancies and making sure we're all on the same page, that kind of thing, right? That's what you got to be doing at band practice. So you would never do that. And then insofar as getting all the individuals to learn the tunes, you guys know how to do that. Uh, 11, <laughs> apply your 11 commandments. You'll be fine. Anyway, that, that's, the, that's the golden rule about bands is that when you get together as a band, you're working on stuff that the band, only the band does, right? And then things that individuals are responsible for, all of that happens outside of band practice time. Now, if you want to teach some of the guys lessons in your band, that's fair game, right? If you, want to, if you want to have small group sessions outside of band practice where you work on learning the tunes, that's all fair game. But that's teaching. That's not band practice, right? And then so how do you teach someone? It's up to you. Probably in a lot of different ways. But okay. But then meanwhile, the question continues and there, it's all good stuff. Do you focus on certain elements and look at how they apply across tunes? Amen, my brother. That's exactly what I would do. Yeah. That's why we do the tune of the week. That's why we do constant variance. It's because rhythm is the same across all tunes. Right? There's those three knobs that define what groove we're going to play in, right? Number of beats per musical idea, number of subdivisions per beat, and whether it's straight or swung. There's those three knobs. You just learn how to turn them, right? And then you learn the key rhythms and you learn about the groove and all that stuff. And suddenly you're rhythmically prepared for any tune that might come your way, right? Because I don't just want to get Rowan Tree going in the band. I want to get Rowan Tree going in the band, but also next year when I want to learn Old Rustic Bridge, another 4-4 march, I want it to be no problem. And I want it to be easier to learn Old Rustic Bridge because of the work that we put in on Rowan Tree. Thumbs up if or, that Or here's sense. another good example, like in a given band practice, okay, let's practice this set. And hey, guys, you are rushing your X embellishments here. It'll really work to keep those on the beat. Great. Now let's transition and play a different tune that also has some of that right. same embellishment. Make it's sure you're applying same. what we just talked about. And inevitably, if you don't say something, or even if you do, it's still bad in the second tune. Drawing those connections and having that same moment, that same embellishment, but in a different context, right. is how we will get better at that stuff playing those things in unison so but just be warned so it's like, just be warned you're already venturing a little bit towards teaching at band practice yeah it sound it's starting to sound suspiciously like teaching and the goal okay the goal in the band is to not have to do any teaching right all the teaching has already been done and people are walking into band practice as well refined musicians that have very few bad habits which is of course i get it it's going to be a while before you get there, but that's the goal. That's the thing that you should be angling towards working towards. So Nolan might have a band. Maybe it's just a beginner band, but what's the culture of the beginner band? It's, hey, beginners, your job is to become outside of band practices, to become as good a musician as you can possibly be. And what we're going to do at band practice is work on band stuff. 
And maybe it needs to be something like band practice gets cut down from three hours to one. But in the first two hours, you're working with some groups and doing some actual teaching. Yeah. And then the band comes together for one hour and does some really good band centric stuff. I like, I totally get what you're saying. It's just, yeah. Like, yeah. What it's going to happen is people are just going to come to band for the three hours and that's what, that's going to be what they do for the week. Gonna it's be, back to the massive action yeah, versus daily action. Massive action. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, it's up to you how you want to achieve that, but that's what it is. So a band should be a culture of individuals, right? Who all want to master individual technique and then who all agree to come together with that excellent technique to create the music. That's the spirit that you're looking for, I think. And in the top bands, that's totally all that it is, right? So like I talked about how I was disappointed in how my bagpipe was at the last competition. Cool. That's not something anyone's going to address with me in at band practice. No way. No way, man. And like the culture is such that I'm already so disappointed in myself that it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be that I've already fixed it. And I'm going to be working on making sure that it's fixed all on my own. That's my job. And that's the culture of the band is we're going to be, we're going to be all working individual individually to make sure that when we come together in the band can be as good as it can be. It's a great question though. Do you just accept that it's going to be like this? That is up to you. I accept nothing. Yeah. Where, where's the next local band? <laughs> that has better culture may not be on. Is there a chanter read pitch level that could prohibit the drones to tune? For sure. If the chanter read is super flat, like you may find if you've ever dabbled with a B flat chanter that some drones and drone read combinations, they would have to tune so high that you're going to need some extenders in order to get the drones to tune. Yeah. Good question. Answered totally. Could be. The high A or low A thing is great until one or more other notes is extremely flat. Cool. So we're talking about balancing the chanter here. And what you'll occasionally find is low A balances really nicely with the high A. Woohoo! My digital tuner just shows me that my low A balances perfectly with a high A. So we stick it in. But what the digital tuner can't tell you is whether or not all the other notes are optimally balanced. So let's say your low A and the high A are all balanced, but the high G is screaming sharp. That's a problem. Or if the F is super flat, that's going to be a problem. And how are you going to deal with that? And the answer is carefully. Jay yeah. says, maybe it's not totally realistic for a grade five band. That is a limiting belief that I don't think is correct. So what I'm I, talking I, about, what I'm talking about is this, is the spirit of the thing. Not that everybody shows up a great piper, but everybody is embracing the appropriate spirit that we're looking for. And that is realistic. And that is the secret sauce. And then I think a lot of great five bands are not realistic in the sense that, hey, we're going to learn 60 tunes to parade down the street and our competition set on top of that. We're going to do it. That's maybe not realistic for a great five. It would be band. a roadblock. It would be a potential yeah. roadblock to fostering like the culture that you're looking for. Sure. And I don't know. I haven't thought about it recently. I don't know exactly how you would like produce this alchemy that you're looking for but that is the alchemy you're looking for right you're looking for people who are interested in bagpipe music chipping away at it a little bit every day working on their technique seeking out opportunities to improve and doing all of that outside of band practice because of course band practice is to take 
all of the individual skills we have and focus on putting them together. Right. Yeah. Never, anytime you have to teach an individual something, individual technique during band practice, take note of it. A red flag should go up. We want to avoid that. We can absolutely teach at band practice, but it should be stuff like how to get a good break together, right? How to integrate and listen with other pipers around you, how the tuning process is going to work in the band setting, how to not be reactive when creating unison, stuff like that. Those are things we absolutely want to teach, but we don't want to be like, okay, let's take a 15 minute timeout from band practice stuff that we should be doing so that we can teach little Timmy how to calibrate his drone reads because he hasn't bothered to learn how to do that outside of band practice. Like that, those are the types of things. And we all know those are the things that derail band practice and make you want to, I won't even say what you want to do. Yeah. The yeah, other so, thing we should be pay, paying a, attention to is certainly for in a leadership position in a grade five band is you know, intensity. Grade five bands should be low intensity, but focus on that development and like getting the basics right. But adjusting that dial, that intensity dial, so that it's representative and both challenging, but not over the head of your players. There's some spots, location, that sort of stuff. Yeah, That's going to produce better results in the end. And it's and, never low intensity, right? It's always no. appropriate intensity. That's another commandment, right? right? It's appropriate intensity. You want to bring the maximum intensity you can bring to your grade five band, right? before bad things start to happen, right? People are like, I can't, right. I can't take it, it's too much pressure. No, that's, you've gone too far. But you want to bring the exact right amount of intensity for that situation. And by the way, that's going to be a different level of intensity than the intensity that Pipe Major Stuart Little is bringing to the band at the moment because it's different. It's a different sort of thing. And the agreement that you're making with your team members is just a little bit different in grade five than it is in grade yeah. one. But the spirit of the thing is identical. So the, it varies in degree, not spirit, right? That's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, amen. Loving it. But low intensity is never what we want either, right? We always want the sweet spot of intensity. The sweet spot refers to the correct intensity. Nice, nice. Okay, cool. Are we going to do this foot tapping one? We can, yeah. You want me to read it? Foot tapping. So basically, this is on Discord about any help or suggestions for tapping your foot, marking time. Apparently, I want to tap my foot whenever I play a note instead of my foot driving the bus. Yeah. What I love about this is we're already at the stage where we've admitted we have a problem. We identified that problem. This is excellent, mm -hmm. right? You're on the right track. Yes, your foot should be driving, not just randomly tapping your foot every time yeah. you play a certain note. Yep. And I think another common one would be, okay, I can clap some rhythms and everything goes well, but as soon as I start to play my, do my finger work while my foot just starts tapping all over the place and I lose all yeah. the rhythmic stuff that I've gained. And I, what I would say to all of that is it's like totally normal. And what, but what yes. you've done is you've identified the name of the game, right? So I want to tap my foot on every note instead of tapping my foot on the beat and getting things in the groove. Yes like it. Good observation. And so we just have to set out, uh, set out about learning it. So there's lots of good resources. Like the Dojo Rhythm course is a great thing to start with. But then all those listening examples we do in the Rhythm course, you can be creative and extrapolate that 
endlessly, right? So what we do in the rhythm course is I show you a lot of pieces of music and we identify the groove and stuff. It's, you should be doing that too. All the tunes of the week that we do, I don't know about you, Carl, but we spend a ton of time on the rhythm of those tunes. And the rhythm is always slightly different explicitly, but implicitly insofar as the beat and the groove is concerned, it's always the same. They always have a beat. They always have an identifiable groove type. And then we are going to, and then we learn to clap the rhythms in the beat and the groove. And just gradually over time, you'll get better at it. Yeah. And then I would say, just turn this into a complete discussion of commandments. Make sure you're learning things in the right order in the sense that if you're struggling to tap your foot and play to your foot, make sure you're not like practicing tunes at some randomly high beats per minute and focusing on your embellishments and right. Make sure you're actually practicing that thing that you're weak at. The fact that you're struggling to tap your foot while doing something else. You know, let's start with, can you tap your foot and clap the rhythms? Or is that still a little bit of an issue? If it's it is, great. Point. That's like the base level. You will be able to achieve success with that relatively easily if we're practicing just that. And then build on that foundation and you will get better. It's such a great point. Pipers have a tendency to want to practice everything in the kitchen sink all at once. Yes. And then you're like, then you're like, oh, I can't. I'm tapping my foot to every note. Like, yeah, you are because like, you're trying to do a billion things at once and you can't do any of them yet. So it's like, you, you gotta, you have to put the horse before the cart and start at the beginning when you, when you identify a problem. The good news is if you do it right and you commit to the process, it'll be a problem that will evaporate on behalf of all the material that you play over time, which is cool. Yeah. Is there a downside to tapping your heel instead of your toe? My band director told me I wasn't allowed to use my heel and I've had a judge ding me for using my heel. You've had a judge ding you for using your heel? Oh my God. They might mention it. So your toes definitely better than your heel, in my opinion, but that's just an opinion, right? So the toe gives you a lot better feel and action with your foot. And that it tends to give you, in most cases, an extremely finite, infinitely small moment where your toe hits the ground and then you can sync other things up to it. So I definitely like it. And you might mention like, Hey, you should try tapping with your toe, but I don't think anybody would, if a judge actually ever. Yeah, that's that. odd because you know, I'm in that same boat. I'm with you, Nolan, in that I can't really tap my foot. I got feet problems too. And if I tap my foot a lot, I have muscle pain, like my toes. So you just gotta, you just I'm either using my strong. literal toe and then my foot's not moving or yeah, I'll just move my heel a little bit, but I've never had a solo judge ever remark that. Maybe it was a comment because there was also some rhythmic issues. And so they were trying to get to the ideas. Maybe you're doing something funny with your foot that's causing an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And then in a band setting, it's frowned upon to use your heel because it's like you're leading instead of somebody that's supposed to be. But here's a question. Do you even need to tap your foot at all? No. But I'm going, I'm going with yes on this one. I think it's better. I'm going with yes. Built in to, I'm going with yes. You have to tap your foot. You want to know why? Uh, is because 99, of, 99 out of a hundred great musicians I've ever witnessed in my entire life After. tap their foot. So I don't have so, an objective. I don't have an objective reason why I don't know the objective reason, 
but all evidence is pointing me in the direction that tapping your foot is something you need to do. Yeah. But it is a good question. Can you play without tapping your foot? Yeah, but it's awful. I feel like I'm in a cage. Now, in bands, you think players should have the liberty to tap their feet yeah. a little bit more Literally. liberally. Yes. It's I funny, you see it. Silly, I think it's such a silly, dumb thing, which I get it. It's probably from the military background yeah. of pipe bands. But like, from my point of view, sitting where I am, in my, bra- in my strange brain, it's, and they're like, stand still, do the pie shake, don't tap your foot. That is the stupidest crap ever in my mind. No disrespect yeah. to anyone who strongly believes that. And, and then when I play in the band, I promise I'm trying to stand still, but I can't. Yeah. I at least have to sneak a little bit of something in, like Nolan was saying, a little something into my heel. Just, oh, just let me do it. If somebody yells at me, I can go without, but I, it's just. For uh, a few bars until they turn their yeah, back. <laughs> for a few bars and then I'm back. I'm back at it. Yeah. 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 But yeah, tap your foot, people. It's one of the biggest differences between a Scottish style competition and say the baguette groups bag bagpipes out of France. When you watch them perform, they're all tapping their feet. And it's just not a thing. There's yeah. not that military background that says you must all look regiment, no movement, none of this. It's just it's difficult and, because traditionally the piping world doesn't have doesn't have any history of dogmatic, pointless beliefs being passed down. So it does seem strange in this case that we're breaking free from these rules. Yeah. 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 Tap your foot. Learn how to do it. Enjoy it. Feel it. Tap your foot. Vocalize the groove. Do the clapping. To Nolan's point, tap your foot the way you need to get a good, precise, like, indication on your foot. Something nice and small and however it works for you. Try to get some sort of motion that produces an infinitely small target to hit. Yeah. Which, which in my mind is a little harder with the heel than it is with the toe. But if that's not true for you, then that's good. But like, just don't tap your foot like this. Right. You're rolling it. Or you know what I'm saying? Or however, or don't tap your foot like, like that or whatever, because we want, you, you want your foot to actually produce the beat for you. That would be like my sort of like tactile advice. So if you are going to tap your heel instead of your toe, like maybe make sure it's like a, like one of those hard dress shoe heels or something. <laughs> yeah. Put a rear plate it's, on it. It's like a built-in, like... it's like a built-in tactile metronome target thing for us. That's what the foot is. At least for me. Yeah. Cool. Tap my the gas foot. pedal. Yeah. You ease up or you push down a little bit more, but that's what we're using to control the tempo. And you probably can't hear because my original sounds on, but tapping my foot. And I like that. It sounds like just, it sounds like it something's hitting a drum and that really sounds like a drum (laughs) yeah that's what we want sometimes when you're performing you might find what i found is the foot gets a little out of control and now you're tapping it too loud and it's really distracting from the musical performance that you want to make that's a subtlety that we might need to rein in a little bit in the future but for learning loud and proud foot hitting in that nice like tactile percussive sort of thing yeah, the toe click synchronous with the metronome click. Ideally, yeah, Raleigh, yeah, absolutely. The metronome would be like, the metronome is that sort of measuring stick that we would use to gauge whether or not our sense of timing is actually accurate. So if your foot strays from the metronome in any significant way, absolutely something worth practicing. I find the tempo is usually in your head 
and my and your foot follows rather than the other way around yeah i don't know i suppose and, it's all in your head right but i think right. you, maybe you're referring to like your conscious mind is where the beat is in, instead of just having letting your foot do it and i'm not exactly sure of the brain neuron relationships there but i know what you mean but also your the tempo that your foot is t- tapping at is definitely going to come from you from your mind yeah. so it might not be it might maybe it's possible to overthink that yeah i think i, I feel like jay's saying he sings a song hit a tune in his head get that tempo going, and then just follows that. That makes sense to me. But at the same time, you got to be able to do the opposite, which is that feels a bit fast. I want to make a conscious decision to dial that tempo down. Now my foot is following and I got to get that tune in my head to follow that foot. And then hopefully our fingers as well. I always play to my foot. Yeah, me too. That's the way to do it right, I think. And I never tap my foot to what I'm playing. Yeah, but but I don't know objectively exactly how to define exactly what I'm even talking about there. But that's like my that's what I'm doing. So my foot's hitting the floor. I'm making sure all those grace notes perfectly synced with that foot, and it's just like a helpful external thing. By the way, Dave said foot tap sound is a feature, not a bug. Totally agree. It's kind of like Mumford and Sons. They got the, the lead singer just kicks the bass drum as he's playing, and it's like cool. And it's the same. I think that's a sort of folk music thing carry through marching helps instead of tapping only one foot fair game i'll allow it it usually results in more even uh, rhythm certainly for beginners Uh, it's hard to march but that heel strike rhythm so actually the actual physical act of marching it's harder to find that exact moment because usually your heel striking and then your foot is rolling i would encourage you to do both but marking time foot to foot like left foot, right foot tapping, fair game. I'll allow it. No problem. It's all the same though, at the end of the day. So you should be versatile and yeah, mix it up. Maybe just do a lot of all the different kinds of foot tapping. I don't know if we answered this, how to get better at foot tapping, but you certainly have some things to work with here and yeah, many things we have figured out exactly what to say with foot tapping. It's more, it's not maybe quite there yet, but we definitely want to do it. If you can come cool, up with a, if you can come up with a great reason, a great explanation why you should not tap your foot, I'm all ears. But I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think so. It looks dumb. I'm not allowed to in my band. Like those are all possibly true, but they're not good explanations. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I love it, Marina. Exactly why marching works. If I try to march while following my fingers, I'm afraid of falling. <laughs> this is why we want to do it the other way around. <laughs> Follow your feet. Then you'll be less likely to fall over. Who says you can't tap your feet in a P-Brock, David? And then what's the reason? And the reason you can't tap your foot in a P-Brock is, I'll tell you the reason. Because. That's the reason you can't tap your foot in a P-Brock is because. That's a poor explanation in my mind. So if you want to tap your foot in a P-Brock, go ahead. We saw now, a couple at Kansas City this past year, not yeah. throughout the whole thing. It definitely happened. And so every now and then you'll see it in the later variations of Piper will just go for it. But like the truth of the matter is it's just culturally frowned upon. That's the only real reason not to tap your foot during a P-Brock. But if you don't care about that, 
then knock yourself out. It's not going to be a regular foot tapping though, is it? Because P-Rock tends to have a slightly more fluid beat, not perfectly regular. But yeah, tap your foot, man. Knock yourself out, bro. It's going to be fine. And then what'll happen if you tap your foot during a solo competition is you will be frowned upon for doing so. And maybe you'll choose to not tap your foot as a result because you prefer to just, you're not that attached to it and you prefer not to be frowned upon. And that's typically how it'll work, right? Or maybe you'll just be firing above the best player that day anyway, and you're going to win. And then who cares? It's different, right? If it's like, it's different when you say, why can't I just play big grace notes instead of infinitely small ones? Right. That's different, right? That's something where I can give you a compelling objective explanation why grace notes should be infinitely small. I can't give you one as to why you shouldn't tap your foot during a P-Rock, right? There is and by the way, if anyone does give me one that's actually objectively compelling, hard to vary, a good reason why you can't tap your foot in a P-Rock, I'm all ears and maybe it'll affect my thought process going forward, but I haven't heard anything like that. Yeah, Ken, great point. Big name players tapping their foot during a Kremlin with a mock. Exactly. Or even, even like Terlo was before that, but yeah. Could happen, yep. But during the Amok is actually quite common. I've done it. It's just, and it's fun and it's cool. And a feature not bug, right? It's like maybe the audience likes just listen to that rhythm kick in as well. Especially when it's like going really well and consistent and just hey, get into the zone. Okay, people. Cool. Let's wrap it up there. Thanks, you, everybody. We'll have a couple of Friday, good, solid Friday strikings before the carnage of August begins. Yes. Over the next few weeks. So. True story. And um, yeah. <laughs> Vin says, if you're walking around, you can actually move in the rhythm that you want to follow. I love it. And then Raleigh says, that's why P-Brock players look like snails when they walk. <laughs> there it is. I love it. A good P-Brock, a good P-Brock rhythm joke there. P-Brock's got that fluid viscous mucusy kind of rhythm yeah absolutely there you go when is okay. the mission window opening Great. that'll be question after we start the next theme july which 13th. we're gonna talk about talk about the next weekend yeah we will talk about everything but the submission opens not this thursday the following week, and then it'll yeah. be open four weeks in a row what's the tune of the week this week first and second parts of oh i had it in my head Willie nope. Gray, yeah. Willie Gray? No, I think so. Maybe. So you might be able to make an educated guess what you'll need to play for the first submission window based on... Who cares what you have to play? Oh, Carl, nice. Perfectly played. You're just going to play it. Just play your pipes. You're going to be good. You're yeah. going to do the same thing you do every week. You're going to work on the rhythm. You're going to put up together a good bagpipe performance. Do one take and see what happens. Would it be safe to say that if you're honestly good enough to pass your freedom phase, that you're probably going to pass? Yes. Yeah. So true. That's yeah. the whole idea. Yeah. I love it. Wait, is Andrew saying I'm not good? Quite possibly. Yet. Yeah. Wait, what do you mean I'm not good enough? Actually, that's what I mean. Not yet. Get there. Woo! going to be so All right. great you guys who's getting nervous who's getting nervous for the window to open back up just admit it people are oh yeah jay's starting to get excited this is the moment who has two thumbs and is getting nervous for the submission window not me 
because I've already passed my bagpipe freedom. You got your drumming freedom to wrap up. Yeah, I know. I still have to do there. phase five of the drumming. Yeah. Yeah. It's gonna take a. It's gonna take some work though for me to do that. So I've postponed it. Yeah. There you are. Have I been doing my daily drumming action? No. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. When I pass oh, phase I four next it. week. Oh, yes. Okay, everyone, mark mark down. Dave is calling his shot. He's passing phase four next week. Can you submit phase five the week after? Yes. Yes. Yep. I still get nervous as start as I think of starting that recorder. That's exactly why you got to start it. Start yeah. that recorder up. Get it to the point where it's like fun to start that recorder up, not nerve wracking. You want to know. You want to know what's there, what's good, what's not good. You want to know that stuff. If there's bad stuff on there, does that make you a bad person? No. Yes, it does. <laughs> Unless you're perfect, you're not a good person. Everybody remember that. Okay, great. That's a great point. Great place to stop.